Well, good morning. You can have a seat. It's good to see your faces out there. It's good to see uh, people. I, I got to meet some people this morning. My name is Chad. If I have not had a chance to meet you, uh, I would be honored. I'm one of the pastors here, and it's just a treat to get to walk through this together. And what we're walking through is 1 Corinthians. We're in uh, this long look at this letter to a church in Corinth. And we're trying to hold up the word of God and see what it has to say to these people and to us. Our passage today is really straightforward. It's actually a series of questions. And here, just to everybody's delight, like you can answer these questions. They're all uh, as intuitively obvious as we're going to come across. It's also challenging. This is a, a passage which is challenging because it doesn't allow for just happy, clappy religious talk and smiles that just go through and say, oh, okay, that's great. We, all, we can all be real nice and, and Christian-y people. It doesn't allow for that. And so while it is straightforward, it is also challenging, and that is for our good. And so as we walk through it today, I just want you to recognize we're going to kind of make three turns. The first stop for us is just to say, what is being said here? We want to have eyes to see what the context is for the people of Corinth. And then where we want to go from there is to see where we might be guilty of the same things that are being named here in this letter, in these verses. And then finally, we want to see that this, God doesn't leave us there. He doesn't leave us in those spots. He's actually calling those who would follow after him to something really beautiful. And we get to be a part of that. We get to be a part of something that is the, called the abundant life, like actually real living. That's an invitation from God. That's far more like, spoiler alert, it's not just showing up on Sundays. It's not just saying, I go to this church and don't know anybody about that. Like God's calling us to something really life-changing and beautiful. Life, it, it, it's altogether beautiful. So I want to pray for our time. I want to pray for you, and I want you to pray for me, that we would have eyes to see what God has in his word for us. Father, we thank you. We invite you, God, help us to see you clearly today. Give us eyes to see today, God. We pray that in all the ways in which we close ourselves off, that we would fling the doors open to you today. God, you, you stand at the door of our hearts in your knock, and you tell us that those who would open, you would come in. And so we, we invite that. Whatever condition uh, that my friends have shown up today, I pray that you would meet them. I pray that you would uh, just bring fresh grace to lives today, to my life and to theirs. And God, help us to see your calling to real life and not to religion. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Okay, so let's jump in right here in verse 1 to see what is in this text. Chapter 6, verse 1, 1 Corinthians. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to the law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? There's your first question. Comes up right off the bat. Here is a question that is like, wait, if, if there's a grievance between these people, like how does he dare go before the courts in this? Like the context tells us something. Apparently Christian A, not named in the text, Christian A gets sideways with Christian B and then decides like, okay, 
I'm sick of this person, whatever. We can fill in all sorts of gaps here. I don't like this situation. I'm mad about this. And so here's what we're going to go. I'm going to take him to court and we're going to prove that I'm right in this. And that's the context which is coming up that Paul then goes and he uses this phrase that's interesting for us, but we need to kind of turn it slightly to get the full weight of it. He goes, does he dare? Which in our like kind of, colloquialism would be like, how dare you? How dare you take this outside of the church to something else? How dare you move past like the brothers and the sisters that you're walking with? How dare you do this? Like that's a big jarring statement. That, that how dare you that Paul throws in is like, that's the moment where everyone in Corinth and everyone that's reading it later on should kind of like sit up straight of like, Paul's got his flamethrower out and here we go. Like, Paul's not kidding around. Like, this is big deal. And, and here's the part where culturally we bristle. We're like, we know that there's all sorts of jacked up things in our world. And, and there, there are abuses in the church. There are problems in and around the church. And we're like, are you saying, is Paul saying that everything under the sun gets dealt with in-house? That's not what's being said. But he is saying, man, how dare you take what verses two and three say are trivial and everyday matters. You getting bent out of shape, how dare you take that publicly outside to, the, to an unbelieving watching world? See, the, there these two people that say Christian A and Christian B, and they're, they're unwilling to deal with their conflict and disagreement in, in a God-centered, healthy way. And instead, they claim their rights, and this is me, and I deserve this. And, and they start to drag it out outside to Corinth, to a city that is watching. This is a big deal. This is a big deal. This how dare you emphasizes not only that it's ugly, but that it's arrogant. That's really important for us. It isn't just that it's ugly, man. When family business gets out there and stuff, like it's, it's not just ugly. It's arrogant to, to say, like, I'm just going to go after my way and not care about the body. It's putting self at the center. It's putting my rights first. It's putting me first in all of it. And the, the behavior described here reveals a mindset that's flawed, that this, pers- this person has done this to me. Instead of where as a follower of Jesus, we need to be like, this Jesus has done this for me. Or you put the person or our own rights or our own feelings or our own whatever, we put that first as opposed to like seeing them and seeing others through the grid of Jesus and what he has done for us. Now, again, Six, these verses in six don't live in a vacuum. Last week we were in five. Jeff nine walked us through chapter five, which is a really messy chapter. He gave us some, some kind of like core principles to think of. And I'm, I'm not gonna go through all of those. You can listen to them online. But he, a couple things that he did say is sin is real and it's always destructive. That was true last week in chapter five around sexual sin. And that's true this week in chapter six around conflict. 
You see, there's going to be conflict. When there are human beings involved, there are, there's going to be conflict at times. And, and sometimes it's easy to settle and sometimes it's not. There's conflict because people are wired differently. People think differently. People do things differently. The problem isn't that there is conflict. The problem is how we try to solve it. If we try to solve it from arrogant, selfish, ungodly, or unbiblical manners, like, it's just going to lead to destruction. Another thing that Jeff said last week is that the church is called, the church, the body is called to pursue holiness together. We don't just do that isolated. We don't just walk as solo projects out here in this. Uh, we pursue holiness together as, as a picture of God's grace to the watching world. That's why this matters. That's why Paul isn't just addressing the, the guy in chapter 5. He's talking to the church. We pursue holiness together. That's true in 5. That's true here in 6. In, in, the church, in church discipline, this is another thing that Jeff brought up to us for like just principles. Church discipline is for our good. Well, we see that at play right here too. Paul speaking to this issue how dare you step into it? The, the how dare you is not just to the Christian A and Christian B. It's to the church that thinks that somehow this is okay, that this is normative. As we've been talking, like, like Corinth is in them more than they think. They're operating more like their city than their savior. And that comes up again and again, and it's right here where we see it. And that's where these eight questions start to find their home. These questions that are obvious, these questions that just a thinking person recognizes the correct answer to, but how we engage them is actually trickier. It's a harder thing for us to do. Notice where he goes in verse 4. Paul says in verse 4, So if you, if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? And if you've been with us for a few weeks, if you've been with us through any part of 1 Corinthians, you've heard us talk, like, this isn't just a collection of topics that Paul throws into this letter to Corinth. This is a, a series of Paul speaking to a larger issue at hand uh, of an arrogant people, a prideful people, uh, living this out, out of, like, their own personal worldly wisdom. Well, this makes sense. It's pragmatism. This makes sense. It's preference. It's all these things. And like, we should do this and that. And that's what's at play right here. And he's like, why would you take this to the court instead of dealing with this as the body of Christ? Paul asks them to explain themselves. That's what the questions are for. Like, think about this. Like, if you, if you have this going on, why would you do that? In, in a sense, Paul's not looking for an answer. The answer is obvious. Paul's coming to them, and this is ripped from my headlines. This was this week. It's like, hey, I had to ask myself this question. Okay, so like, hey, like, why do you think a triple cheeseburger is a healthy option? Like, we would all know that, right? We would all know that option. It's intuitively obvious that it is not the healthiest option right there. Like, why? Wait, Chad, why do you think that triple cheeseburger is like the healthiest option for you right here? Paul's asking those questions in this text. Let's take it one step further. I've had people at times where the, the real question, the actual question that I've had to ask is like, help me understand how cheating on your spouse 
helps build your relationship in your marriage. Paul's asking the question, not looking for an answer, but putting it on them to think about their actions. This is so out of bounds. It's so obviously out of bounds. What are you doing? And we see that because the very next line, chapter, or chapter 6, verse 5, the first few words say this. I say this to your shame. Say this to your shame. And, and shame is a tricky one for us, friends. We live in a culture in which you think there is no shame. You can do anything you want. You can wear anything you want. You can act any way you want. You can do and say anything you want at any time. And who can judge me for it? And like, like guess what? I, I, I have a really hard truth to tell you. The Bible says there are, th- there are things that we should be ashamed of. That not every action is okay. It's sin. And yet earlier in chapter 4, verse 14, Paul is writing to them about a different issue, but the broader issue of this. And he's like, I'm not writing this to shame you. I'm writing this as a father who cares for you. And yet right here he's like, I am this is to your shame. It's not his writing that is to shame them. It's their actions that bring shame upon them. And we need to kind of think about this carefully because so many of us, there's so many of us in our church that grew up in honor-shame culture, and that gets twisted up. All of us, it doesn't matter where you grew up, grew up experiencing shame at different times and in different ways. And there's a shame which leads to hiding It leads to uh, running. It leads to like covering up. And that shame is always unhealthy. It's always unhealthy. Nothing in the Bible tells us to run and hide away from God, uh, away from, instead it says bring it into the light. Bring it into the light. But that disgust that we feel, that shame that we feel, this action is wrong that we feel. We don't need to excuse it and buy the lies of the world that say, oh, it's all okay. Just be okay with that. No, it says, this is to your shame. Some of this behavior is to your shame. Let it lead you to repentance and to life. If you feel the pull to run away when you hear that word, Man, I want you to hear the call of Jesus that says nothing is too broken, nothing is too far gone. Not one of you is too far gone for his grace to meet you in it. But he moves on and he goes in the second part of verse five. He says, can it be, another question, can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between brothers? Like the answer is obvious. No, you have people breathing. There are people there who can handle this. There are people there that can handle this. Of course not. Going to court against another person in the family of God is a symptom of something much worse. It's not the cancer, it's the cough. It's a symptom of something much worse. And Paul, like a good doctor, is not treating the symptom. He's going right to the root issue. But better yet, better than the picture of a doctor, it's Paul who's already told us he's a father to these people. 
And as a father, like, it's hard sometimes. Like, it's easy to go and address behavior and try to say, like, you've got to change this. You've got to do this. Stop doing this. Instead of, like, why are we doing this? Where's the heartbeat behind this? And, like, we're trying to go after the heart of our girls and not just the behavior in this. We're trying to address those pieces of heart. But sometimes we get off in this. Paul is such, giving us a master class of going to the heart while not excusing sin. And this is the part where we have to make that, that next turn. This is the part of the sermon where we need to see and ask ourselves, we need to say, God, help me to see where I might be guilty of this as well. Because just as there were dust-ups in Corinth, there are dust-ups in Yukon. There are dust-ups in Canadian County. There are things that happen where people get sideways in this. And verse 7 leads us to help understand this again and again. It says, to have lawsuits at all. In this context, among the, among the believers, to have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Paul's like, it doesn't even matter who wins. It's a loss. And this is where kind of a, a, a clear understanding about, about what we mean when we're talking about the court system here is actually important for us. And so we think of robes and chambers and bailiffs and all the stuff that go along with court system. And you, you put it on the docket and it gets in and they call you and you have to go stand there. And there's a respect for all of that stuff. In, in Corinth, court was handled in the courtyard, in the marketplace, at the gates often, or but where the people were of it. And life was passing by as court was happening. And, and so you would bring your case, not just to the judges or the magistrates who would decide it, but you bring it before the public, right? And, and people are going about life, but then because they don't have cell phones in their pocket and they're, they're not rushing home to whatever they're watching or all these different things, they're like, uh, I'm just gonna park it right here with my bag of chips and watch this craziness play out. And you start to see in that context why it is far crazier and a bigger deal that Paul would actually say, how dare you in this? How dare you do this? Because he actually names, he's like, these are tri trivial everyday matters. You guys as the family of God should handle this. You're like, well, listen, I'm not going to uh, sue anybody today, Chad. I'm not thinking about it. Probably never will. I think that's most of us. We're like, not, that's not me. I'm not going to do that. Uh, but before we get too far downrange in this, let me just like highlight a couple of things. I grew up in a time in which I had a personal judge. You did too. But I grew up in a time where there were like four channels, right? And you turn to those types of things. And one of those channels had my man, Joe Wapner. <laughs> Judge Wapner. You can keep your Judge Judy. You can keep your Judge Joe Brown or uh, Hot Court or whatever else all the shows are. I did way too much time researching all the television judging shows uh, this week. All sorts of things. Like, but, but for me and my family, we ride for Judge Joe Wapner. That's how it is, people's court, right? But it doesn't stay there because, like, people keep moving on and we keep finding ways to screw things up and stuff. And so along came a man named uh, Jerry Springer, and he made his way onto television. And what's Jerry Springer saying? All of you know it, you people. Uh, he just brings up people to have conflict. And that's the whole show. 
wild out in front of everybody, and the world will watch it, laugh, mock, and move on. It's best when you can get families up there because they're the craziest. And then it goes on, right, because we have all sorts of things. It doesn't stay there. It doesn't stay with, with Jerry Springer or Maury or whoever else you want to throw into all these types of things because uh, along came this little thing. Maybe you've heard of it. It's called the Internet. We had this, and then and at, it, it, this doesn't happen today, of course, because the Internet is such a safe place for good exchange of opinions and all these things. But early in the Internet, like for those of you that remember dial-up sound and can hear it right now in your head, like uh, early in that, the blogs were all over the place. And you would have endless blogs from Christian people who were just heresy hunters. They're still out there today. They're just not all over the place. We don't see them because we get it in different ways. But you'd have endless heresy hunters that would be like, oh, this person's terrible, and this person's awful, and this person is it. And they don't even know that person. They don't even know that person. And today we do it in a million different ways, right? We've got, we've got podcasts that come right to us, and we can listen about all sorts of craziness that happen in other churches and other places and other ways. We can hear all the podcasts around these things and be like, oh, yeah, I can't believe those people are crazy. How is it any different than what's happening here in Corinth? Judging it in the public square. And you think, well, I don't do any of that stuff. I'm not making a podcast. I'm not listening to that podcast or whatever those types of things are. And friends, like, we are far more into it. I, I, we got hung up at an airport a couple of years ago, and all I wanted to do was hop on Twitter and blast that airline. Because why? I'd get seats on that plane. Or how quick are we to run to the message boards, our neighborhood message boards? That's, my neighbor is crazy. I hate them. Stop putting up your lights before October 31st, Christmas lights. Actually, they go to our church, and I love them, so <laughs> I do love them. But we get crazy in all these different ways. Just this past week, you don't have to go far. We don't have to invent different things. You could get on Yukon Happenings at any point of the day and find churches hating on other churches, people hating on other people, and people who claim the name of Jesus saying, you're the worst, and this is the worst, and you're awful. All these things played out publicly in front of everyone. And it is to our shame when we live this way. It's to our shame when we live this way. And so don't just put it off on some court or some judge. This is us, where we want to claim our rights and our things and stand in that moment. There's a story a couple years ago of a pastor who had a gathering at his house, and somebody tripped, sprained their ankle. Hear that? Sprained their ankle. Decided to sue the pastor in the church. And here's what she said. Here's what this lady said to her pastor. She says, she says, hey, it's nothing personal. I just heard I could get some money out of it. Friends, if that's not you, if you, if, if you didn't find yourself in any of those illustrations and stuff, uh, you will. You'll feel that temptation at some point. And you'll feel that pull of like, I've been done wrong. I need to stand in this moment and I need to get my rights. And what Paul is saying is like, you've been adopted into something really beautiful. Stand in that. Live out of that identity. Live out of that reality and handle all of these things differently. 
verse 7 goes on, and verse 8, he asks these questions. He says, why not rather suffer wrong? Like, why not rather be defrauded? Verse 8, like, but you yourselves wrong and defraud, even your own brothers. He's like, stop, stop going after demanding that you get your way and you get validated or vindicated, that you get your rights or you get all of these types of things. Like, you've done worse to others. You've done it yourself. You and I are guilty. Stand in that moment. I want to just take a brief aside real fast. And I want to be crystal clear about what I'm not saying. And before we wrap this up and before we make our last turn, I want to be really clear about what I'm not saying. This passage is not saying that Christians should never go to court. Paul writes elsewhere about the rightful place of governing authorities in the judicial system, in their, in their role in restraining evil in this world. There are places for that. But our text talks about trivial everyday matters. These things where we just get into conflict and we're like, oh, we're going to go air this out publicly. Instead of talking to my neighbor, I'm just going to blast them on a text thread or on a message board or on some social media channel. This passage is not saying the church should handle criminal matters. Abuse that should be reported and dealt with criminally. There are real issues. There are policies that we have for a reason. For a reason. There are things that are not to be dealt with by the elder body or by the body of Christ, by your community group. This passage is not saying stay silent. He's not saying stay silent. He's not trying to shut anyone up. Church cover-ups and or the silencing of those who've been deeply wronged is never okay. Is never okay. The Bible speaks to sin and being wronged, to abuse and to confrontation. And this is where I think it helps us to kind of go back in our passage. Earlier, I skipped three important questions. I skipped them. And they were distracting in the moment, but they, they help us now to see. And so I want you to go back to, we're still in chapter 6, but verses 2 and 3, and see what he says. Verse 2 says, do you not know that the saints will judge the world. Saints, not being those who've cleaned themselves up, not being super Christians, but those who are rescued and saved by the blood of Jesus Christ. Follows after Jesus. Saints will judge the world. And if the, if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Like this whole world is like... You're sitting before the world is so different. Like, can you not handle this? Verse 3, do you not know that we are to judge angels? Which, I, I, let's all in fairness say, like, Paul, I didn't know that. <laughs> I missed that one, Paul. I don't know exactly what that looks like. I don't know what that means exactly. I, I don't know. Like, I have some questions, Paul, about that right there. We'll come back to it. But he's making a point, like, do you not know that we are to judge angels? And even with all your questions, how much more than matters pertaining to this life? He 
You see, God has called us to so much more. He's called us to something beautiful, which is our last turn. This is where, this is where we're going to kind of lay in this plane, so to speak. And we want to see that God has called us to something far more than just sitting up straight at a church, singing the right songs or showing up at the right times. See, Paul uses this and he asks those questions. He says, don't you know that you're going to judge the world? Or, and don't you know that you, like as a follower of Christ, as a saint, that you're going to judge even angels in this? And, and even in those questions, it, it points back to scripture. Jesus is with his disciples and they're having this argument because he's got a couple of disciples who have been like, hey, we want to sit on your right hand and on your left hand. Can, we, can you give us the best seats in the house? And Jesus is like, you don't even know what you're asking you don't even know what you're asking right here in this. And can you drink this cup, he says. Can you drink this cup? In Luke 22, at the end of that conversation, verses 28 through 30, Jesus says this. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials. And I assign to you as my father assigned to me a kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, friends, we're not going to unpack that all today. But what Jesus is saying, he's pointing this directly. Paul's not just making this stuff up. He's pointing to something that Jesus has spoken to, like your relationship to the king is different once you're adopted into this family of God. You're, and that means that your relation to one another as family of God is different. It's different. And you handle things different. He returns to this. We're not going to read it right now, but he returns to this. In Revelation 2, we have these letters to these cities, and Jesus is speaking prophetically in these, these, to these cities in these letters, and he goes right back to this. In Revelation 2, in Revelation 3, he says this. And the point of it is that the right now, moment by moment way in which we live our lives, that we go about our day when no one's looking, when no one is there to see it, how we handle ourselves in those moments, and how we handle disputes is all part of God's preparation for us for something much bigger. For something much bigger. Now, a really screwed up way of approaching that would be like, great, one day I'm going to sit over everybody and I'm going to cast some judgment because they need to hear that. That is not the takeaway from the text. The takeaway is that God has invited all of us into something far more beautiful. In our present moment, momentary conflicts, the irritations that we have with one another, big and small, are all part of God prepping us and tuning us, using the family of God, using those around us to remind us of what he has done, what he's doing, and what he has promised to do in the future. It's all part of our sanctification. It's all part of our preparation. And I love how one commentator puts it. He says this, Gordon Fee, in a, a really great book around 1 Corinthians, the first epistle to the Corinthians, it's a, it's a commentary, uh, but it is helpful in this. He says, the absurdity of the Corinthian position, the absurdity of what the Corinthians are doing and how they're living right here, the absurdity of this position is that God's newly formed people will, will someday judge the very world before whom they are now appearing and asking for judgment. 
Not only does such an action give lie to who they are as the people of God, but it's done in the presence of unbelievers, the very people for whom the church is to exist as God's alternative. Friends, you may be in conflict right now with people. You may be frustrated. You may feel like they have wronged me, this person. And, and, and this person in our church, or, or this, this person says they're a believer, and they, they have so hurt me. They've hurt my feelings. They've, they've, they've bothered me in this way, in this thing. And I'm telling you, by the very word of God, I'm not telling you to stuff it or ignore it. I'm telling you that God is inviting you to bring that to him and to bring that to one another as part of your sanctifying and your sanctification in your life and his redeeming work in this world. It's for your good. It's for my good. We don't like it. We would rather just avoid conflict altogether. But it's Paul right here calling us like a father. This letter is that of a father, not just dealing with bad behavior, but tending to a child's heart. And so don't reduce this chapter. Don't reduce the next few chapters. Don't reduce this letter as a whole to just some collection of bullet points that Paul's addressing through this. No, Paul continues to go right back to this theme that you and I were called to something else, something more. That you were called to live as a child of the king. In the family of God, this body of Christ. As a picture to the watching world around us. And he says this, even by the end of this chapter, he says it. In chapter 6, verse 19, he says, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within within you whom you have from God? You are not your own. For you are bought with a price. You go on through this book and you get to chapter 10 and he says, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And here, here's how he goes on. Verse 32, give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many that they may be saved. Chapter 11 says this. It says, if anyone is inclined to be contentious, like we should all raise our hand. At times we have that. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. Chapter 14 says, brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. And then he leads to the end of this letter in chapter 15. He says, now, I would remind you over all of this, we're not having a behavior conversation on each individual list of items. Like he's reminding us of of, of a bigger calling that he's inviting us into. I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel. The gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. 
Friends, right before I hopped up here, we sang, I surrender all. And we went through that several times. I surrender all. All to Jesus, I surrender. And we'd guess that probably all of us have spots in which we're holding on. I want to surrender all, but I'm holding on to my rights. I'm holding on to something. I'm holding on to these things. There might be people in here who, even in singing that, actually have never surrendered their life to Jesus. But this is a moment for us at this ending of the sermon and the leaning into praying to meeting with this Lord where we stand in those words and we say, God, help me to surrender all. That I would live differently as the person, as the person that you're at work in, the person that you've called, the person that you're forming and reforming, the person that you have, will say in 2 Corinthians is a new creation. The old is gone and the new has gone.